Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So um, it's really nice to be back here after, uh, I think I haven't been here for a while. It's been like maybe four months, I'm not sure, five months. But um, for some of you might wonder what, what happened to my clothes. Uh, I mean, I'm not, for those of you on the recording, I, I am wearing clothes. <laughs> I'm not naked, but merely a change of costume, right? So um, I, I returned my monastic vows about a month ago, uh, which was not a quick decision. It was a decision sort of thought about and uh, mulled over and in connection with my teachers for uh, about a year, maybe, you know, thinking about it and stuff. So um, for those of you who didn't know that, <laughs> surprise, <laughs> I guess. Um, hopefully it's not a bad surprise. I think, you know, these, um, you know, my talk today is related to this uh, on disillusion and resilience, but, um, you know, for me it's not a, it's not a sad thing. It's a, just a life transition, yeah. So it's, there's, there's joy and and pain and, and, and in any major life transitions and sort of changes, as you all know pretty well, I'm sure, right? So um, I'm happy to talk about it. I just uh, don't have anything much to say about it right now, other than the news of it. Um, so, so today, I thought to talk on this topic on dissolution and resilience. Um, for me, the, 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 this term dissolution in the sense of like dissolving or changing as opposed to disillusionment, although disillusionment is usually connected <laughs> and can be quite easily. Um, in Buddhism, we express this often as, uh, you know, impermanence. So in Buddhism, we have these uh, three universal characteristics of uh, impermanence, dukkha or, or dissatisfaction, and uh, uh, selflessness, basically, or, or, or uh, no self or not-self, yeah, that's the third characteristic. So I thought um, to talk a little bit in relationship with this first characteristic and um, disillusion. So, you know, for me personally, the, the, this, this process um, is, a, is a major disillusion of sort of like one identity moving into the other, you know, and sort of that range of like, even what does that mean, you know? So often, you know, we're, we we form an identity, and then we're sort of in that identity, and then that identity is constantly shifting. It's not a static thing, but we believe that identity. This is me. This is how I function in the world. Then all kinds of behaviors sort of get put on top of that. From a Buddhist perspective, this is what we call illusion, meaning that it's something that functions, that, that, um, that sort of appears a certain way, but when we, when we look deeper, it's not that way. It's a lot more fluid and malleable, right? And then from, from, from this place, it's not just sort of pointing that out from the Buddhist perspective, it's pointing that out to say like, oh, and then we, we experience pain when we're grabbing onto that or experiencing that as a solid thing. But I don't know, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of you are like me, which is like, I just keep forgetting that. <laughs> it's like a, a constant, you know, need to be constantly reminded, oh yeah, like, it's not so solid. And of course, you know, it's difficult when we're experiencing a lot of suffering and pain ourselves, or we're seeing others go through pain and suffering in the world. 
or we're being bombarded by, you know, a million Facebook posts a day <laughs> telling us all this, right? So, um, and I wanted to say that, you know, fundamentally, I think this comes down to us, we are deep relational beings. And when, when, we, when we're not allowed to do that, or, or we're, we're, we're living in a time or a culture that's not honoring that, there's going to be a crisis and dysfunction and, and um, a lot of, within the disillusion, which is just natural from a Buddhist perspective or impermanence, there's going to be more pain on top of that because we're not able to honor that disillusion together. We, we have to be alone in that kind of disillusion. So one thing I, I say that sort of, you guys are, seem like a very, you know, community that's really well connected and there's a lot of relationality and stuff. So I think it's maybe a little easier to talk about this with you guys. But I think this is sort of part of the discussion. So I just want to sort of, you know, start the conversation that way. Um, so just adding on to re uh, relationship a little bit, Buddhism essentially from its roots in, in Asian uh, culture and, and uh, coming out of other Asian traditions and religions, um, the, the Asian cultures at least until, you know, they adopted American <laughs> style things, were deep relational, are still deep relational cultures. And the religion itself is meant as sort of, it's a communal practice, or I should say meditation. Although you're alone, there's still this relationship. We're always like, I, I like this word uh, communing, not, you know, commune is an interesting word because we just changed the inflection, it's a commune. So that was like, <laughs> you know, I was kind of reflecting on this morning. But anyways, there's this sense of, of, uh, of communing, which is like sharing our deep um, inner thoughts, our deep sort of emotional responses, our, our pain, um, our dissatisfaction <coughs> with each other in a way that's just there. That doesn't need to be like, I'm on my own dealing with this, and therefore, like, it's a special thing when I share it, or I'm being vulnerable when I share it, right? We hear this a lot, which is a good thing. It's because it's I think that's teaching us to sort of, it's like we're, we have to relearn these things in a way. I'm talking about me. Maybe all you are fine. <laughs> so I should be clear about that. I do think culturally, we, you know, I'm not alone. But anyways, um, so there's this kind of relearning of like offering, being, you know, when, when it's appropriate to be vulnerable, when it, when, it, when it is safe to be vulnerable with others, then we can use that as a way to, to relate. Um, in, in this way, I'm going to talk about it in, in the sense of relating to our, when disillusions are happening, how do we lean into those disillusions? But um, just continue on with relationality is, so, so in a, in a, traditionally when we're, like for a Buddhist practice, uh, or an understanding, or a worldview, or, or a way of connecting to prayer, or um, teachings, or meditation, all these things, there's a deeper relationality in the bones, as opposed to like a thinking re relationality. And so, on top of that, when, when, when there's not the relationality, when we're experiencing sort of isolation within our practice, it's going to go much slower. So I think for me, what I'm advocating in general is like, how do we lean into our own pain? So this is the theme of today. How do we lean into our own pain, the suffering we go through in connection with others? And how can that serve as a way to open our hearts further? Um, there's a really awesome Quaker phrase I like. Uh, I have a friend who's Quaker. Um, and I never thought Quakers were cool that much. Because like, I just picture the guy on the oatmeal box. <laughs> which is really bad, and I'm not trying to offend Quakers, it's just me being an idiot, right? So, um, 
So anyways, there's this Quaker phrase. Let's see if I have it memorized. Um, I have it written there, if not. Um, it takes a cracked mind to shine a little light into the world. Mm. Yeah. And again, you know, I think this can be interpreted in a lot of... Di- what? You should read it to make sure. <laughs> I think it's... Uh, yeah, it's this. I was right. It takes a cracked mind... It takes a cracked mind to shine a little light into the world. Yeah? So here I think this can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. It's not sort of a... Um, obviously these kinds of things are phrases that are pithy. And so we have a lot of these in Buddhism too. Um, and here I, I'm going to interpret cracked mind first. So, so how we refer to it in Buddhism, especially in Vajrayana Buddhism, is sort of like some of the practices we're engaging in in order to crack our crack our heart open, yeah? And, and this is kind of a tricky thing, because you need a basis. We need some kind of, first we need some kind of ground to crack our, hope, our heart open in, in connection with others, in connection with our own pain and suffering, in connection with our, our life, and, and, you know, what we call samsara in general, in Buddhism. But um, sometimes, like, so it's like a cracking open, but not a cracking, like, apart or a breaking down. As my teacher, Sokhna Rinpoche, says, he says, uh, break through, don't break down. Right? So this is referring to that, I think. So it's sort of like, so my sense is, um, you know, we have this, within the Mayana path, we have this path of the Bodhisattva Yana within Mayana Buddhism. And um, there's a sense of like a, a Bodhisattva, which is an individual who, who wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of others, but at the same time, an actual bodhisattva, someone has some like um, ability to be awake. So they have some sort of experience of, of wakefulness, um, seeing through that illusion I talked about earlier, and then through that, their heart is cracking open further and further in connection with others, seeing that as they wake up more and more, as they sort of become more uh, privy, is that the right word? Like more aware of their illusion, they see how much others are, are like stuck. You know, and they want them to be free from that, right? And then they work towards that, uh, and that's their motivation. So I think, so for a bodhisattva like that, um, which is uh, you know quite rare, th- th- I think their their heart is fully cracked open, and and you know some teachers said it's like having a broken heart all the time, you know, because we can see, you know, the the world is quite painful, yeah. But again, even like we can say like uh, that also is a type of illusion. So it's very tricky in Buddhism because like how do we work with recognizing our own illusory experiences? Meaning like, you know, I was having, <laughs> this is really stupid, but uh, this morning I was talking with my friend when we were driving and said, I'm not a morning person, you know? And then I get here and I'm talking to Casey and, uh, for a second and I said, um, I said, yeah, We'll see how the talk goes. I'm not really a morning person. Then he goes, it's, dude, it's 10 o'clock. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, it is 10 o'clock. Wait, maybe I'm not like a before noon person. <laughs> but then I realized how stupid that was from, from my side of like how I'm grabbing, fixing on to a mood. You know, I have a mood of being a little tired or a little bit like my mind isn't as sharp or something, and then I make it something, and then I fix onto that, and suddenly that's me, you know, then I show up in front of all you wonderful people today, and that's me, you know, this not morning person, disrobe monk, you know, guy, I don't know what else, 
So, um, so anyways, uh, this happens all the time. It's sort of, I don't know about you, but my day is filled with, with this sort of over-repeated over and over and over. Then I wake up and do it again. But, you know, at least I think when we're studying the, the, the path of, uh, if we're interested in Buddhism or, or, or just spiritual, spirituality in general, I think when we're studying and we're meditating, we can see that um, if, we, if we try to see into these illusions more and more, you know, not for like attacking them, but really trying to create wakefulness within them, right? So one way to do that is to sort of um, work with disillusion. So I, I want to read something to you guys. It's a little bit intimate, but um, that's okay. I trust you, <laughs> I think. So you can just close your eyes, um, just sit comfortable. And I, what I like to say when I read this, um, I gave a talk in Santa Monica and Melrose in Hollywood and same thing, is um, just try to drink this in, you know? Try to drop the thinking and try to feel. <coughs> Disillusion, you are crushing. Like a hammer striking, you obliterate indecision and shyness. I love and hate you, disillusion. You're a cruel muse that belts such wise and brutal tunes. You are my mother. You are my teacher. You are my lover. I want to nest within your womb, yet you kick me out. Your truth is painful, yet I feel so alive. How could this be? I'm such a stupid fool, a hard-on for last night's dream, yet you still show up to patiently instruct me. May I always be within the reach of your embrace, like a rock being slowly worn by a million-year trickle. So for me, this kind of short poem really sums up sort of my feeling towards disillusion, which is um, often can be very painful. Um, depending on what the disillusion is, you know, for instance, your spouse or partner tells you they hate you, <laughs> they've been cheating on you for five years, that's, that's, that's going to suck, you know, <laughs> that's something we, we don't want. And I think being honest about things in our life, um, especially kind of with spiritual path, like some people say, oh, like, it's okay, whatever happens. No, some things just suck, you know, some things like are awful, <laughs> you know. I think we know this well, there's a lot of turmoil going on, a lot of shifts going on you know, politically, and so there's a lot of sucking on different sides, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, and sometimes these kinds of disillusions are actually, like, great, you know? <laughs> I was telling everybody the other night, like, this is awful, but, you know, let's... You know, you might, you might, maybe you all work with someone, or, or, or will, or have heard of someone who works with someone who's not a nice person, who's, you know, not fun to be around in, in the office or in the workplace, and then suddenly they get fired, and you're like, sweet, they got fired, you know? <laughs> I'm not saying rejoice when people get fired, but that happens, you know? And then, so, you know, things like that happen, and those are disillusions that maybe we're happy about, or maybe, um, you know, we were sick. Had, had a flu or a cold, and then it ends, right? So these are types of impermanent situations. So sometimes impermanence is, is on our side. I say, uh, like, um, I have this phrase of, like, uh, 
liberation upon forgetfulness, which is just sometimes we just forget something was awful, and then we move on. I mean, if you think about it, if we, if we remembered every single thing, we would be like, it would be awful. We would be the most neurotic people ever. <laughs> so, um, so anyways, I think dissolution can function these different ways. And so here, in, in this writing, this short poem, really I think it refers to dissolution as a teacher. And, and how does it become a teacher? How does it become a home for us as a practitioner? And again, some of you might not be here in this place, and that's fine, where maybe you just like to meditate and you, you know, that's your, that's your spiritual path, um, and that's fine. And in Buddhism, what we're doing is actually like, in Buddhism we're trying to understand like the ground of the first noble truth, which is the truth of suffering, or the truth of pain, or we can use the word dissatisfaction, because it doesn't just refer obviously to physical and emotional pain, it also refers to like momentary change. And from a, the bad news from a Buddhist perspective is, when we're in a, a, a dualistic frame of mind, a subject-object frame of mind, we're never not experiencing some kind of dissatisfaction. And it may appear like, like I'm feeling pretty good right now in this chair in front of you, but if you sat me here for a few hours, I would like, please let me leave. <laughs> You're, you are keeping me hostage and I want to leave. <laughs> Just because my body would start to hurt. You know, so we can see how even pleasurable situations turn into pain or... or um, or they turn into some, you know, something we thought was going to be a certain way, didn't turn out that way, right? And this is just our life. And so the Buddha didn't say that as like a huge bummer. I mean, he said that as his own recognition of how things are. And then he was like, please like, pay attention to this. Not so we can sort of get really depressed, but so we can use it as a place for resilience, yeah? And, a, and a, as a ground to, to find wakefulness upon. Because I always say, like... Um, I, I, I know someone's going to, I'm going to get in trouble with one of my teachers for this one day, but the Buddha would be a real dick if he just taught the first two noble truths, you know, and not the last two. That would be a really cruel thing to do, because the first two are like, yes, there's suffering and there's a cause, right? But he didn't. He taught the last two, which are, and you can eliminate that cause through the Eightfold Path, right? Noble Path. So... It was one of the, it's probably the kindest thing he could do. It, it is the kindest thing he could do for us, you know, or, or anyone who's teaching that, uh, that, that principle to us. And it's the kindest thing we can do for ourselves, practicing that. So, getting back to disillusion and uh, resilience within that, is fundamentally like, so there's, so the ground is this, is this disillusion, meaning like every moment is changed. Right? So even within a finger snap, we have like so many moments from a Buddhist philosophy point of view. So even within this, there's many, many moments, right? Each one of those moments, we just can't hang on. It's, it's just moving every second, no matter if we want it to or not. Yeah? So this being the fundamental ground, that becomes the principle then to sort of, from a Buddhist perspective, to, to just relate to life that way. Not in a big depressed way or a bummer, although it can be that way for a while as we're coming. It's like sort of, um, what do you call it? You have, to, you have to, you know, we're hitting rock bottom in a way when we come to that conclusion. Oh yeah, this is how it is, kind of. Now, I'm not saying that's how it is and you should believe it. This is meant to be reflected on. A lot of the, just a side note, a lot of the time, um, a lot of these practices and philosophies and things from a Buddhist perspective, they're meant to be chewed on. They're not meant to be accepted. That's, again, part of the relationality of Buddhism. 
you know, it's in relationship with something else, not just something we have to accept and eat and like deal with. It has to be chewed on. Because I think the chewing is more powerful than the actual belief system itself. Right? It's a little controversial to say that, but I think it's true. The more and more I've, I, I work with it. So, because it, it brings you to that anyway. Because what are we trying to unleash? What are we trying to unveil? Just how things are. You know? We're not trying to do anything else. It's just, how are things? You know, and if something's incongruent, if the Buddhist path says it's not congruent, then we have to keep checking, you know? Even as Holy Dalai Lama says all the time, like, if something's not congruent with science or something, and they really do prove it, then we can throw that out, you know? I mean, if they really are proving it. Of course, there's nuance to that. Some things are unseen, and you can't prove through an empirical method. Anyways, getting on a tangent. <laughs> so, um... So this ground, once we're starting to relate to this ground of dukkha, right, of just fundamentally, 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 this is what we're experiencing. Now, from a Buddhist perspective, this is also not our nature. So that's the good news. It's, our nature is not that. This is just the sort of covering over our nature, right? And so, but we have to relate to that covering. Otherwise, we are spiritual bypassing, we're checking out, we're, we're not going to be able to actually get the fruit we want, because we're always looking over there. You know, it's like uh, when a house is tilting and the windows start breaking, but everybody starts fixing the windows and doors and walls and they don't see the foundation. So we have to see that the foundation is fundamentally flawed. Now again, I'm not saying out there fundamentally flawed. We have to look in our own mind. And not we are fundamentally flawed, just the way we're perceiving and working with things. You see what I'm saying? There's a, we have to, so we have to have a slight shift. And then when that slight shift starts to happen, we actually are, uh, in a weird paradox, we're actually able to recognize our pure nature more and more. So it's almost like as we see what the flaws are and how we're relating to ourselves in the world, then we start to see, oh, there's another option, which is this pure nature, what we call Buddha nature in Buddhism, which is being able to see through that illusion more and more and more, right? Until awakening. So... Um, so I think I'm going to just describe one way of finding resilience, because there's many ways. I think, you know, traditionally, relating to our, our, our life in this way, as the Buddha described through, you know, the first noble truth, and then understanding the three marks of existence, right, uh, that I explained, that in itself can reveal resilience eventually. Because what it reveals is like, first of all, like you see, this sucks, and you want to get out. You know, you want to change something, you want to shift, you want to see, well, how can I work with this, right? So it seeks us to want to find resilience, or in Buddhism we call awakening, right? We call it a, the awakened mind. So uh, we want to seek that out, we want to work on that, and we do that through the, the eight, eight, Eightfold Noble Path, we do that through the practice of meditation, wisdom, ethics, all these kinds of things, right? But I think also, uh, uh, once that, for us as a preliminary to, um, is... Because we might have all kinds of... It's a sticky place I'm talking about, right? It's not just like, oh, I understand that intellectually, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? No. <laughs> Unfortunately. I wish it was that easy. We actually have to feel. We have to see like what's coming up, when it's coming up, and we work with it, right? In that moment. I think we have no time these days for kicking the can down the road. There's just no time. We're inundated with too much, um, you know, the, the 
always, I don't think we're in a more precarious place. The world is always precarious from a Buddhist perspective. You know, I try to remember this when I get overwhelmed with news and, and Facebook, my Facebook feed. The world is always precarious. I actually like go, you know, I think people should go read them about the Middle Ages. You know, like the world was brutal. You know what I'm saying? And so, from a from a Buddhist perspective, there's resiliency even in just understanding that. How do we crack our hope, our heart open, and and act and help others? But we're not we're not also expecting to fix the world. How do we do that? How do we hold that paradox? That's when we're gonna. If people are able to hold that paradox more and more, we're gonna see a very beautiful world if that starts to happen. Because the fix it mentality does not create a beautiful world. It creates a very neurotic, funny world. And there's always funny things coming in. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. So, anyways. So I think as a preliminary, like I said, this ground, just, just relating to that principle over time and chewing it. By relating, I mean we have to chew it. We have to think about it. We have to reflect on it. Um, we can't crack our, ho- our heart open, but our heart will crack as we work, yeah, in connection with others. But I think one really simple preliminary practice, uh, uh, too, just to add to this, is leaning in. And I want to use this sort of... Um, a little bit with a warning, which is when we have a trauma reaction to something, so if you're able, if you have an ability to see that and there's an ability to self-regulate, please don't lean in more. So if you're having an experience in your daily life where it is triggering a very deep trauma in something, do not lean into that. Or be very, or maybe you can lean into the periphery or be a little bit more mindful when you're leaning into that. Because um, we're finding that sometimes with mindfulness it can actually make trauma worse if we're not careful. So, so I, again, I just say that generally to every crowd, because I don't know where everyone's at, right? And that's also not to stigmatize anybody, that you have trauma, okay? But I just have, want to say that as a little, like, what do you call it? <laughs> little... Footnote. What? Footnote, but... Um, disclaimer. disclaimer, yeah, that's it. So you can't sue me later. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Oh my god, it's 10.57 already. <laughs> so... This, this resiliency is, um, wait, this stops at 11.30? Yeah. Okay, okay. We have time. <laughs> Good. I want to do uh, some back and forth, some question and answer kind of conversation with you guys. So, when we're able to lean in like this writing, this poem that I read to you, which is more like letting this, like, so I take small disillusions uh, disillusions first. That's what I would recommend as just a perspective of not leaning in too hard into something that's too heavy. So for me, it's like, um, oh, like, I didn't get enough sleep last night, something like that. So I can lean into that a little bit, the, that mood I'm in, what that's bringing up for me, the, the sort of annoyance, because I wanted to be super awake this morning for something, <laughs> like super sharp mind, or I have, a sup- I have a really long day with a lot of busy things. So then how, do I, how can I lean into? Lean into here is also meaning like feel. So how can I feel that in my body? And it's pretty easy. But for some of, you know, for me in particular, it was not easy at first. This took time. So for some of us, this is going to be immediate. If we've been doing this for a while, or it's just our personality. For some of us, it's going to be harder. And the key is to just bring the mindfulness, bring the awareness into the present moment. So this is where our cushion practice can really benefit us. As we're cultivating present moment awareness, we're cultivating sort of an ability to... to I don't like to use the word focus because I think then 
practice becomes like a technique for becoming a better Google employee. So, <laughs> so I, I don't like to use that, but it, it is for that too, like concentration. But more or less what we did this morning is like a calm abiding practice, which is to sort of bring the mind into the present moment. And I like to use the term like we're cultivating non-distraction. So it's an ability to be less distracted, to be here now. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, like Ram does. Uh, to be in the present moment, right? So... Um, <laughs> so anyways, uh, I, I was joking the other night, because I think when you give it, I'm starting to sound like a, one of those like calendar, like effort, what do you call it, like, like new age books, I don't know what's happening to my teaching, maybe when you give back your monk's robes you start to sound like a new age guru, I'm not sure what's going on, <laughs> but I really don't want to do that, <laughs> so I gotta be careful, so no offense to new age gurus, <laughs> so, so anyways, um, this process of leaning in, feeling the contents of, of, of what's coming up. So for me, it's like being a little tired, maybe, or something like that. I'm just giving an example. And then leading into that, feeling that. And of course, we need the, mind, the, the awareness or mindfulness from our sort of sitting practice. We can use it for that. So if our sitting practice becomes something cut off from our daily life, it's not so good. It just becomes a technique then. And in Buddhism, it does not become so much a practice for wakefulness. Of course, it can become a base that can turn into that eventually. But our practice has to integrate with our life. And so I think we have to start integrating it right away. Meaning we have to have something to integrate, but we will. Even if you sit once, for some people, they have a profound, you know, they, you experience, wow, I can't concentrate. You know, so there's something to integrate. Meaning like you have a new awareness about yourself, right? About your experience. So anyways, the integration here is recognizing when there's a when we're hitting that point of resistance, right? When we're hitting that point of I don't want to feel tired, right? You know, I want to be awake and blah blah blah. And instead of going for the coffee, maybe spend five minutes just feeling that, feeling that because re- the resistance is more of an emotional response. It's more of a it's not the physical response, although the physical response is just there. That's not easy to get rid of right away. But we can work with our response in our emotions or response in our mind and feel. And here it's not accepting the, it's not accepting the feeling, meaning like, um, what's the word, like not saying this is me and it's also not rejecting it. So we're staying in this space of just letting it be, right? And then slowly what can happen is we can take on more and more and more even profoundly painful situations. Like uh, these days for me a lot of uh, what I do is um, it's hard because I, I, I'm still experimenting, wondering if it's too ungrounding for me sometimes, so you have to experiment with yourself, mm. is uh, to walk around and let my heart just sort of crack a little bit for, for what's going on. You know, I watch somebody's life, who I'm in the vicinity of, or, or something going on in the news, and I think there's a, there's a quality where empathy can sometimes lead to, to burnout, so we have to, like, we have to recognize when, it's, when we're not when it's not creating resilience and when it's, when it's creating sort of um, fatigue, right? And that's also a whole nother, maybe that's another talk. <laughs> but I think you all know what I'm talking about, right? Um, for me, I, I find it's just a shift of the mind. It's just a shift of the perspective, right? Because if you see all bad for like an hour, that's what the world is going to seem like. That our perspective is influenced by that. But also we can influence how we're seeing things. So as we're leaning in, as we're feeling, um, continually dropping into our experience, um, 
make sure you're not getting fatigued by that either. Make sure you're, you're giving yourself, make sure the resilience is coming. But it's a little bit of a risk, like I said. So I walk around sometimes and, you know, in San Francisco where I stay a lot these days, the homeless popu- population exploded, like over the last eight years or something. Like really, really bad. And so, and it's heartbreaking because the, 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 the physical condition a lot of these people are in, are in is, is it's, mm. it's, it's almost close to India, like mm. what I've seen in India. It's not that different, which is pretty brutal, <clears throat> except for like not the extremes, physical deformities, right? And, and just the, um, it's, so it's sad. So like, how can I, you know, I ask myself the question, how can I commune with these people in sadness, meaning in, in, in my in compassion of wishing them free from what they're experiencing. And also, how can I act? Of course, that's there too. But for here, I'm talking about the meditative process. How can I, how can I leave room for that, lean into that? Or it might make me uncomfortable. Like, I'm here, you know, shopping at Levi's. And this guy's, you know, in downtown San, San Francisco. And this guy's like, you know, half naked on the street, you know, and covered in his pee. So, like, it makes me feel like an asshole, you know? So can I lean into me feeling like an asshole? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we have to touch all those parts. Whatever is separating us out from fundamentally being in nowness and in the reality, you know? I don't know, there's some, some, something to talk about here. So anyways, any, any I think I, at this point, I'd like to kind of discuss a little bit. So is there any sort of things that are coming up for you guys or questions or... Um, <laughs> Little bummer talk. I didn't mean for it to come out this morning, but it's because I'm not a morning person. See? He's got to invite me in the evening. You'll get like super happy, you know, full of the F word probably is what I'm yeah. Now that I'm not a monk anymore, I can say fuck more, which is my dharma. Actually, I did it before. <laughs> no excuse. I really appreciate the talk. Thank you. Sure. Um, I just think it's really striking how many times a day there is that becoming in dissolution constantly. Yeah. And that it's so at the foundation of everything that you're saying of, of, of the subtle dissatisfaction. And that just a little awareness of that brings so much freedom. So, yeah, just appreciation for the discussion. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> I appreciate um, sharing your life experience, especially in the last year that you mentioned. Um, it's, um, I had a, my own disillusionment within the last year as well, and my life, compl- my life path completely changing, and so being a little like, whoa, you know, where's my crown? And mm-hmm. took a while to find it, to find it and to, um, you know, what you've been describing, like, you know, um, having a different outlook towards life and towards myself and how to have that relationship and how not to close down and mm-hmm. to myself and to what I see around and um, or towards um, object subjects that have helped me with the solution and process <laughs> and really been also thinking about how everything is in, impermanent and um, makes me definitely feel 
so much better and like okay this is really everything has been so much more right um, by hearing other people's journeys that mm. they've had similar you know lessons and um, makes me feel more right so thank you <laughs> thank you I um, started to think about this this word dissolution then and I started thinking well the opposite of illusion is, is illusion then what is illusion then and yeah. I almost think that there's more truth sometimes in dissolution because you mm. you sort of created an illusion of how you think things are and then that sort of when you start to experience a dissolution that there there almost can be more truth despite mm. the fact that there it's more painful so it's just helpful to think about it in those terms because sometimes I think we build up we build up what we think are truths and yeah. th they really can just be illusions that mm -hmm. we didn't know yeah. yeah exactly yeah I think that's the that's kind of where a lot of the Buddhist path is, is leading one for in the beginning is, is to a, quite a lot of disillusionment which is a different word than the disillusion I was talking about, right. but it's similar. It's similar things that are coming up in both. So, um, but the dis, yeah, like I said, like when we start to relate to the first noble truth of dukkha and, and just how that is pervasive in in our world in our life, um, it's yeah, it's hugely disillusioning because we question everything. Like, what have I been putting my energy into? What where have I been putting my intentions and motivations? Um, like, what am I, what's even, like, I'm starting to question, for me, what's happiness? What does yeah. it even mean? Yeah. I mean, I know from an intellectual Buddhist perspective, a lot of these days I don't care so much, um, like, I keep studying and doing things, but I'm much more interested in experience, like, than, than I'm saying for me. Mm -hmm. There's places for study and, and intellectual learning, that has to be there. But for me, I'm a little less interested in, like, because uh, part of a... Uh, uh, the culture I'm indoctrinated into in, in, in America is very much uh, like intellectual certainty is the king or queen, right? And so I'm trying to get out of that. But anyways, back to your kind of statement. Um, yeah, definitely. So this place of just relating to dukkha, we're going to get disillusioned. And that's the point, because then it leads into understanding there's a, there's a you know, uh, feeling there's a, there is a way to get out of that sort of framework or of samsara, of circling, mm -hmm. and through the path of of Buddha Dharma, right, or the Eightfold Noble Path, and then it makes us want to practice more. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the disillusionment in Buddhism is used not as a bummer, but as like a fuel, you know, for practice. And so for me, I meditate every morning on, um, you know, for me, they, they, they come into what, what's called the four thoughts that turn the mind in, in Tibetan Buddhism. So every morning I meditate on how my perfect, this human rebirth is precious, how I'm, it's finite, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it at some point, and there's no, like, time necessarily, I, I know that it'll be gone. It can be gone right when I walk out of the door. There's no way I know when I'm going to die. And that, uh, and then reflecting on sort of that the actions and behaviors in my life have a meaning. They have an effect. And they, they and it's in, and I need to be more mindful as a person of my speech and my actions of body, which we call karma. And then um, the fourth is just that within samsara, you know, this quote from Guru Rinpoche is one of um, the saints in Tibetan Buddhism, he says, uh, he was actually more Afghani, Indian, but um, yeah, he, just, he came to Tibet. He says, uh, within, I looked, and within, so I'm sorry, you can't even find um, a pinpoint's width, like on a pin, you can't even find that much happiness. 
it's not even there. Mm-hmm. So I always reflect on this thing. But the funny thing is, like, uh, I keep trying. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, yesterday's, uh, yesterday's, like, ice cream binge didn't work, but maybe today's is going to work. <laughs> but, and then fundamentally, we wear that out over time. And then the dis- we get more disillusioned, but we have the practice to turn to. You know, it's not to get disillusioned than to be like, you know, a French poet. <laughs> With a beret. Not that that's, that's awesome, but you know. So, so we have to use that then for fuel. So yeah, uh, fuel. So yeah, I'm just kind of riffing out what, off what, what you're commenting. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking about Duke a bit recently. And one thing, that, a concept that came to me that was helpful is almost seeing it not as horrible stuff, but an unmasking. Mm-hmm. And I think how much of, say, my life is complacency, and I think the world is, this is the way it is. I mean, not that it's not bad enough that way. Mm-hmm. But then other things come, and there's a lot more than I ever thought there was. And in a way, seeing more realistically or clearly is a lot more painful. Um, but maybe I need to see the way things really work. And maybe only through that is freedom or salvation. And I want to emphasize too, because I said it briefly earlier, but even that pain from a Buddhist perspective is also illusory. But this illusion doesn't mean we spiritual bypass and ignore the whole process. You see? That's what the trick is. It's very tricky, you know? Because even, you know, my, my, uh, my teacher, what he warned me of when I stopped being a monk, he said, don't go into the, just be careful not to fall into the beautiful mud of samsara. More. He called it the beautiful mud of the world, you know? With <laughs> mud, you get completely dirty. But it feels, it appears beautiful, Right? So there's that, that illusion is sometimes easy, because like, nah, maybe it's not, anyways, both are hard, just, just different ways, but you know, the illusion of like, a Hollywood fantasy, like that sometimes we can see through, but the illusion of like, when we're really experiencing a painful situation, or a deep, dark disillusion is happening in our life, it's difficult to see that there's, that's also an illusion, but and then how do we do that while still feeling it and experiencing it? That's what I'm advocating. Because it's quite easy for, for me in general, and I assume some of us culturally, to like, you know, I had to relearn how to feel. That wasn't, you know, wasn't natural, wasn't taught to me, right? So, uh, so then it's quite easy to just like, oh, well, it's all illusion, you know? <laughs> like, like in Buddhism, we just say... It's all illusion, you know, and I did that for a lot of years, and I was like, oh, but I'm still kind of a dick, and then I, you know, sometimes, and I'm not that happy, so maybe it's not illusion, and so, like, I went back, you know, and I'm feeling, so within it, there's this space, because we're constantly having a reference point, but here, illusion is started, we're starting to question, question the reference point, it's starting to bring that boundary out of, like, who, who really am I, you know? For me, this the monk disillusion is really fun because it's like, who am I? You know, who can I? Who? What is my identity? I don't know. You know. For me right now, it's just like buying new clothes. So, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but 
but that'll get old, right? And my bank account will dwindle. <laughs> Anyways, just, yeah, it's good though. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, the thing that resonated the most for me, I think, was the community part, the seeking of community mm-hmm. as you go through disillusion and trauma and all the other life changes that I'm going through. Um, and it's interesting because as I've been going through my process of four things of calm down some, but I'm still very much in what I call the, you know, in high school you have hell week, but I have like hell months right now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm still in that period. And, um, and I do have this like urge to find community, but also there's the, the urge to be alone and, and that can be very isolating, but you do need a long time too, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this balance of, um, coming together with community, not oversharing all the time, <laughs> um, being alone, and then not being too alone so you feel isolated, you know? Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's an interesting balance that you have to try to find your way through. So. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot about that. And first of all, I just want to validate what you're saying, and then if it's okay to say a little, is it okay to talk a little more on it? Sure. Um, what I meant earlier is like this relationality is something beyond like um, a physical expression. Because it's a, it's a like a stance or a mm-hmm. way of being, and the more and more I I look into it, it's like, because I have that same question too. Because it's like, oh yes, we literally do need each other. We need affection. We need you know intimacy in all kinds of different ways. We need help. <laughs> you know, if we're just really honest, we I cannot survive without any of you in this room, right? And I thank you for that. Thank you so much. Meaning just like the interdependence of our world. You know what I mean? Not it's not always literal. Sometimes. So then, what you were triggering for me too was going back to like, and then of course we need to cultivate alone. And on the Buddhist path, like, you know, I've, I've probably, I've been, I was mostly alone for the last nine years, meaning like isolated. But a lot of that is wondering like how much of that was the isolation I feel in my heart versus what's actually happening mm-hmm. on the outside. So this, this connecting back into, into a relational way of being, because I look at, uh, like for me, uh, I've had, as another culture besides white dominant culture, the only one I've had a relationship with intimately is Tibetan culture, to a certain extent, living, sometimes living in Nepal, India, and then here with Tibetans in America. Um, and they don't function like us, if, if they're really Tibetan. They're, they, cha- they change in diaspora sometimes, because they, 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 they end up sort of marginalized within American society and other Western cultures. And of course, as refugees in India, it's different. But if you are able to hang out with people from different cultures when the culture is still there, meaning that the way, by culture I also mean the way they hold their bodies and the way they're embodied. And I noticed that relationality, and this is a, a hypothesis, so please don't take this as like an actual thing, but my feeling is that the way they hold their relationality is like, well, you're, you're always with people, and the, the, the sense is not I'm this person alone, having to do something or having to perform tasks or having to make a career or a life or survive. The sense is we are doing this together and that's not an intellectual sense, it's a felt sense. Mm -hmm. And so then when you have yogis and yoginis, practitioners who are deep, deep meditators who go off into long retreat in the mountains, um, I don't think they feel, I don't think they're feeling, they they do get lonely I'm sure and and feel alone, but I don't think they're cut off, they're not feeling isolated. That's the difference. And actually isolation in that sense could be healthy for them because they have a healthy emotional base where they're already connected and re- relationally mm-hmm. and then it's like when you separate an animal from the bunch it becomes more disturbed and that sometimes can help the practice actually in a funny way for a healthy person meaning someone 
So yeah, I think a lot about that. I mean, I don't have an, you know, I'm just thinking as you're talking, because yeah. it's the same for me, like how much to balance mm. social communal time, relationship time with individual time, and then how much is, um, how much am I just like, it's perspective. Because often in cities, I feel the most lonely sometimes, mm. if I'm alone, right? Mm. So what's happening there? Mm. And again, this is a function also of not just us as an individual. So I don't want to say that to blame us as an individual. When others around us are acting in that way too, we're feeding off that because we're relational beings. So we're, you know, the energies are feeding off of isolation, loneliness, um, self-deprecation, you know, like low self-esteem, these kinds of things. So as a culture, I feel we have to create new models, and then those models can like move more and more. So we have to start with ourselves, obviously, and then that can like go out and out further, and challenging dominant cultures. Because dominant cultures aren't the dominant culture in America is not a it's not a um, it's not a thing it's not a culture it's a set of privileges and a set of behaviors there's no culture there so it's not doing anybody help it doesn't help white people it doesn't help people who are marginalized it doesn't help anybody in, as an inner being meaning like it doesn't help us to become more compassionate full of human beings it helps people materially I should put it that way yeah. anyways I. Some, that's what I mean. It helps white people materially with privilege, but then you don't. What, some, there you go. It helps upper middle class white people materially. Thank you, thank you. And then again, some. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, from this sense, I, I, I like how people call uh, dominant culture, it dehumanizes everybody. And it gives privilege to some and oppresses others and marginalizes others. Anyways, I always promise my Dharma talks I'm not going to talk about white dominant culture, and then I always do. (laughs) It must be in my schema. Because I think culturally, I think it's a big, it's a big reason we're having some of the dissonance, Mm -hmm. like, like where I'm describing and what you described. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you described that for you, but that's how I experience what you said. Sure. Well, I'm not paying attention as much to the outer because I have too much in Mm -hmm. my own personal life happening Mm -hmm. inner. And I mean, I did go to the women's march, and it was very. an amazing force of like giving hope but you know I mean not to go into it but I'm going through a divorce I'm a single mom and I quit my job because I worked at my ex-husband's company and it's super crazy contentious divorce and um and I sold my house and bought a house I mean it's the yeah yeah yeah, it's crazy so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all. So I can't pay attention to Trump and stuff. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I have my own. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's good. And yeah. and also I meant that's what I meant by like yeah. gauging our leaning in too. It's true, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that's that's why I don't yeah, lean yeah, in yeah. more. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any qu- any other questions? I think we have a few minutes. Yeah, uh, ten minutes. How do you, uh, I mean, this is something I struggle with, a chewing that, you know, really hits home because I feel like that's what I spend the majority of my day doing is just chewing on different thoughts, but how not to spiral because that so quickly turns into a downward spiral of just kind of chewing and, and it can get, become very negative. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know how, how to stop that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so, so chewing here, there's different types. So there can be like an intellectual chewing, which I think actually we need very little of, little of uh, depending on how we are. So if we tend to be like very analytical person, like that's how I am, then I, I, I try to chew less analytically because that's easy for me. It comes naturally. 
and then maybe if, if we don't tend to like analyze our experience a little bit, then we can use that. And then there's also the chewing just feeling. So by chewing, I don't mean like we're running over it over and over again or spinning a wheel in our mind or our thoughts. It also means just feeling. And that feeling can be kind of a chewing because we're digesting our experience, which we don't often do. We actually don't have time for a lot of the time because if something's overwhelming or we're going through a difficult uh, disillusion in our, in our life at the moment or whatever, um, we need time to be alone and chew that. Like, it's hard to go to work and then like, oh, I got to do all this stuff and chew that emotionally. So this is where I think culturally too, like we have to start to create different habits. Like one, one habit I really like that I think is doable for people. It's a little hard with, with young families, but um, like taking one day off on the weekend, turn everything off and just either practice or do these kinds of self-care things, right? Because it, it starts to create the habit where it's not that we can't, digest our emotions and, and processes in a busy situation. It just means we have to have a very strong habit of it first, and then we can. So, so I found over time, for me, that's why the monk path served really, really well, because I had time. So it was a wonderful way to just be able to work with myself and work with the Buddhist path and chew things. And then, and then there's some ability now. But I get, over, I get overwhelmed, just, you know, too. So, um, yeah, I would say there's that. And then I think the type of chewing, there has to be this connection I'm finding. So again, these are all just, I don't have a formed idea of it, but sometimes the chewing does go down a wrong path, you know, where, where it's just like, goes into the habit of, oh, I'm a bad person, you know, into like self-deprecation, all these kinds of things. So that is, that's a different process where we do not want to continue to chew there because we have to come out of that habit, but we have to come out of it by going through it, right? by feeling through the self-deprecation, leaning into that, and then actually feeling not thinking around it. I taught this handshake practice before here, I think the last, no? From Sofnir Mshay? Anyways, um, it's about just dropping any expectation, being with the experience right now in the body, feeling, you know? And the more we do that, it can heal things. Uh, and also, of course, like therapeutic techniques, having therapists is wonderful things for working I'm not saying you, you're talking about self-deprecation. I'm adding that. Because obviously I have it and have dealt with it. And so, um, and so then it's not chewing on that because it's like chewing in connection with it with, with others in the sense of like, I often get isolated when I'm like in my head and in, in, in my thoughts. Like, this is my experience in mine alone. Like, oh, nobody has... But we all share so much, right? And so... Getting, getting into those kinds of chewings can help sometimes too, because it starts to reflect and be relational, and it starts to get us out of our isolation. We're very isolated culturally, I think, you know, and as a country we're very isolated. So, so my answer is, for, for me personally, is to just work, I'm working on myself to get less isolated, and we can become more and more lights to each other, and that's how change really happens, you know, you know. Um, so I was thinking about uh, the Noble Truth and how you mentioned that if the Buddha would have stopped with the first two, that would have been pretty terrible. <laughs> so I, I think that, yeah, that's completely true. And that, like, I can connect that with especially us who, many of us, most of us probably, that have gone through trauma 
Because when we go through trauma, that reality, that suffering is here. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of drilled into our, our mindset and we get stuck. Mm -hmm. And that's when the tightness happens. That's when we build up all of these walls mm -hmm. around us. And it's just kind of a, a reaction to um, not repeat the same thing, not recause that harm. And so when you were talking about how um, how uh, being with the with what is can kind of let uh, the light crack, and that's 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 what happens because when we're um, acknowledging what is, meaning we're not uh, building the wall of disillusionment, then that's that's when change happens because we're in a way dissolving the strong barrier that we have built mm -hmm. around us. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we are better able to connect to other people. I think a lot of us right now, many of us, um, we're kind of stuck in the first two noble truths. I see that a lot especially like on the Facebook posts. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so sometimes I ask myself, where is, what is the feeling behind the post? The motivation is, let's create change. But what is the, the feeling behind it? And sometimes the motivation to create change comes from anger or fear. And then sometimes the motivation to create change comes from warmth and softness. And I think that's what we have to kind of uh, be aware of um, and kind of like be in touch with our own intentions of how we want to move forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a good way to end it. Yeah. You have just listened to a recording from Inside LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.